Okay, so I trust your Bibles are still open to Acts chapter 21. We're going to look at those 16 verses that I just read. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for loving us and saving us in Jesus. Thank you that our hope is not in ourselves, but in him. And his saving is rock solid and sure. I pray now, Lord, that your spirit would guide and direct our thoughts, form and shape our affections, that through this, your word, we would be conformed ever more into the image of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. So friends, the, story, the, the Bible, the Bible from beginning to end, can be thought of as the story of God creating, saving, and redeeming. Okay, that's sort of the story arc of the scriptures. Sometimes it's maybe helpful to think about the Bible as a play in five acts. You have creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church. And all of this in scripture is playing out under the sovereign hand and watch of God. That's one way to think about the scriptures. It's actually the primary way. But in another sense, and this is what we want to do this morning. In this secondary sense, the scriptures capture the story of men and women. People like you and me. People who have been created in the image of God for the purpose of being his vice regents here on earth. The whole purpose of God creating man and woman, creating humanity, was that we would steward his authority over the cosmos. That's why God gave Adam and Eve one big instruction. Do you remember what it was? Don't eat of the tree. But primarily, underneath that instruction was this. Trust me. Trust my word. Live under my rules, not your own. Well, you know how that unfolded, right? Adam and Eve failed to do so. And you and I continue to fail to do that all the time. What's that called? Sin. That's right. Now, when we think about sin, we have to think about it rightly. Now, sin is not only the shortcomings that we do, right? It's not just that we do things that we shouldn't and don't do the things that we ought to. Sin is fundamentally our bent. There is something corrupted in our very nature. At this deep level, at the level of our affections, we love what we should hate and we hate what we should love. Let me say that a different way. Although created to be God's vice regents, living, exercising his authority by obeying and trusting his word, we have this virus in our very being called sin. It's not the case that we are sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We fail to trust God and to trust his word. It's, it's part of the perversion, the fallout of the fall. We live in rebellion against our good God and king. Now, the gospel tells us that our God and king is not like other gods and kings. 
other kings crush rebels and kill them. Our God and King in the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't kill rebels, but dies for them. To restore the relationship between a righteous God and his sinful people, he takes the debt that we owe upon himself on the cross. Justice is meted out in his own body. The punishment that we deserve, he takes for us and in our place. And so the chasm between God and humanity is closed. The church and individual Christians become the embassies and the ambassadors of that amnesty between God and man. That's our calling. And Jesus commissions the church and commissions all Christians. Do you remember this at the end of Matthew's gospel? He says, now go and tell, baptizing them and instructing them to do all that the Lord commands. Fundamentally, as a Christian person and as a Christian church, our calling now has been restored to what it was back in the garden. Trust and obey. Live your lives radically, telling other people about this message of amnesty in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, see, this is in whatever, five minutes, the story of the cosmos, of God, of his saving glory in Christ. It's also your story personally if you're a Christian. You've got to own it. You have been undeservedly saved. And as a saved person, you are now tasked with a job. It's your vocation that transcends all other occupations. You go to work. You pack lunches. You look after the kids. You know, you have all these different, you have hobbies. But the vocation that transcends all others, the governing principle that drives it all, is that you are a saved person who takes the message of salvation to others. That's your calling. Say it a different way. You have been made a citizen of heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you are an ambassador of that amnesty to others. It's a noble task. It's a vocation and a calling and a responsibility that's worthy of your life. And it's one that demands courage. It's one that demands conviction and determination. We could go through Scripture and see countless examples of God's courageous, determined men and women People for whom their obedience demanded a great price. People for whom following the Lord required this willingness to chance and risk it all. Well, friends, that's what we have here in Acts chapter 21. Luke records this moment where Paul is choosing risk for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in this moment, is 
betting it all on the gospel and letting it ride at the expense and risk of his own hide. So as we jump into this passage, I want us to look at it and see the courage and the conviction and then glean from it lessons for ourselves so that we as Christian men and women might also chart a course of faithfulness that leads to meaning. Let's jump into verses 1 to 3. In these, I want you to see courage that's rooted in conviction. Look at verse 1. It says, And we, when we had parted from them and set sail. Look, built right into this very first verse of chapter 21, there's an emotional toll to saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. It's more clear in the original Greek than it is in English, uh, but the toll was great. Verse 1, this word that's translated into English as parted, in the Greek literally means torn away from. Rend apart from. There's this sense that when Paul and the missionary team left the Ephesian elders in Miletus, it wasn't just like, yeah, deuces, peace out, right? It was like, Torn apart from. The emotional cost was immeasurable when he left these guys. You have to note that the easier path for Paul and the missionary team would have been to stay in Miletus or to return to Ephesus. They, if they wanted to take this easier path and avoid the emotional cost of leaving, they could have justified it in countless ways, right? They could have said things like, well, look, ministry is going really good here in Miletus and in Ephesus. We've been well-received. People are being saved. It's fruitful. The church is growing. It's healthy. They love me, Paul could say, and, and I love them. Maybe I should just take the emotionally easier path and stay. But look, you know this is true from your lived experience. Life will often present you with a fork in the road. Which path do you choose? How does a Christian man or woman decide? Right here we see in this very first verse that Christians ought not to be pragmatists. Do you know what I mean by that? It means if you're presented with a fork in the road and you have to decide, should my life go down one way or the other, Christians do not fundamentally get out a list of paper and write down pros and cons. If Paul and the missionary team had done that, they would have come up with far more reasons to just stay in Miletus and minister in Ephesus, wouldn't they? Would have been a lot easier. Christians are not pragmatists. We don't just follow the path of expediency. So how do we make decisions? Well, we see here Paul's example. Our decisions are based on conviction. Not what is expedient, not what are the pros and cons. We ask the question, what does the Lord want from me? 
And often, like Paul and the missionary team here in Acts 21, we find that the hard choice is the better one. You know, it's just the way life works, isn't it? If you spend your entire life just taking the path of least resistance, it leads to this gradual deflation of yourself. Nothing good comes from that. If, however, you chart a course that's based on conviction, you will map meaning and purpose. So Paul here is willing to tear himself away from the Ephesian elders for something greater. He chooses the hard thing because he has a sense of calling. So you're sitting here this morning and maybe thinking, well, what does the Lord want of me? Well, there are some broad categories that can serve as guardrails that can kind of um, set up the outer limits within which you can figure out what the Lord wants from you. Let me tell you what the Lord wants from you in a broad sense. The Lord wants you to be saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. God wants you to repent, to turn to Jesus, and to trust in him and be saved. That's the first thing he wants. The second thing he wants is for you to grow in assurance of that salvation. The third thing that he wants is for you to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness, to be sanctified. Say, okay, R.D., that's great in general terms, but what about specifics? Should I take this job or that? Should I accept early admission to this university or to that? Which course should I take? Well, within these broad categories that we've just set out, God wants you to be saved, he wants you to be assured, um, he wants you to grow in godliness, these specific questions then become matters of particular discernment. You have to sort through them. You pray. And you don't pray in pragmatic terms, right? You pray and you seek after a clear sense of calling. Would the Lord grant that he would say, this is what I want you to do? You pray. You read the Bible to seek his will. You talk to people who are elders in the faith. But the point of this passage already in verse 1 is this. You don't shy away from the difficult option just because the other one is easier. God often calls his people to do the hard thing. You think about that for a moment. Why is that? Is it because God is some kind of masochist who wants to punish his people and torture them? Well, certainly not. It's precisely so that in the difficult situation, God will be glorified instead of you. Look, if you never put yourself in the hard option, then you will never see God with the opportunity to show his mighty arm. So Paul here chooses the hard thing and leaves the elders from Ephesus in Miletus. He's torn away from them. 
He's heading to Jerusalem because he had conviction. Conviction that mustered courage. I want to say this as clearly as possible before we move on to the next verses. Christian man or woman, you will never know courage until you risk following the Lord's leading. You will never see the mighty hand of God as long as you're playing it safe. I can tell you that from Scripture. I can also tell you that just from our lived experience together as a church. You know, so many of you have come to St. George's since we have built and moved into this church building. But let me assure you, it was a terrifying matter to undertake this project. Our congregation at the time was about a third the size that it is right now. We believed that the Lord was calling us to do this feat that we could never do, to build a church for people who were not even here yet, right? For you. And it took a massive step of conviction and faith and courage to follow the Lord's leading. I could tell you countless stories. Um, I'll just tell you two. Shortly after we got the construction project underway, I showed up here on a Monday morning, and the site supervisor pulled me aside. Now listen, by this point, we were tapped out, right? We had raised all the money that we could. Our little congregation, you know, the little church that could, um, we are taking on this enormous project, and we felt like we didn't have another penny to give. I showed up on a Monday morning, and the site plan um, supervisor said to me, he goes, RD, we've encountered soil problems that were unforeseen. He said, if we do not have an extra $800,000 by Wednesday, we have to shut the entire project down. So had we been pragmatists, we'd have said, well, there's absolutely no way. We can't do this. We have to back away. But instead, we had a sense of calling and conviction. Two phone calls later, we had another $800,000. The Lord provided through the generosity of a couple of families. I'll tell you another, another story about building this building and the conviction and the calling. Um, when we were building the building, we determined that we needed to have a small servery. We call it a servery, not a kitchen, so that it doesn't have to get inspected and all that stuff, okay? Um, the servery. But we, again, money was super tight. We thought there's no way that we can afford to put in all the cabinets and everything that goes along with it. And so we had designed and measured everything. We had chosen the particular cabinets and their color and all that. But we said we're going to have to put that on hold move into the building, and hopefully put in the cabinets at a later date. Well, we had been working closely with Lowe's across the street. And the general manager of Lowe's approached us one day and said, hey, you guys kind of need some kitchen cabinets, don't you? And we're like, yeah. And she said, well, there was this big house down on the lakeshore that was renovating their kitchen, and when their cabinets arrived, they decided they didn't want them, so they returned them to us, so we're just going to throw them in the dumpster. You can have a look at them if you want. 
So we went and had a look at them. Now, you have to believe this is the honest truth. I'm your pastor. I'm not lying to you. They were the exact cabinets that we had designed and picked. The same color, the same design, even the same little knobs. Oh, that goes further. They were exactly the same dimensions. Look, when you go into that little servery, I want you to remember the faithfulness of the Lord God who calls his people to follow him courageously and with conviction. Paul's ministry is shaped by this conviction. Choosing the hard thing, not the easy, because the Lord God is good and faithful. Paul's deep conviction is this. He, he knows that the Lord Jesus Christ died for me, so now I can live boldly for him. Verses 1 to 3, he leaves Miletus for cause. He then goes to Rhodes, to Patera, and on to Phoenicia, all along doing the hard thing. Look at verses 4 to 6. Verse 4, he arrives in Tyre and he's put up by the local disciples of Jesus in that city. He stays there for a week. Verse 4, these well-meaning disciples try to dissuade him from doing the hard thing. They try to dissuade him from going on to Jerusalem. See, the disciples of Tyre knew what Paul already also knew, that Jerusalem deals harshly with its prophets. Paul and everyone, including the disciples at Tyre, knew that hostility awaited Paul. These disciples loved Paul, and they didn't want him to face imprisonment or worse. Let's, let's press into this for a moment, because there's something to be learned. I want you to imagine for a moment this scene in verse 4. Feel the empathy Perhaps you have found yourself at different times in your life on both sides of this exchange. First, maybe you have been like the disciples at Tyre. And you have watched as a loved one risks a difficult road. Everything in you wants to spare them from that coming hardship. And that's only right. You want the best for them. You plead with them to pull back. You think that road ahead is far too difficult. So you love them. And you, because you love them, you wish for them an easy life. But be careful. When you seek to bubble wrap or nerf the edges of another person's life, you might actually be dissuading them from their hero's journey of faith in Christ. You might be the Freudian devouring mother. To put it in modern parlance, you might be a proverbial helicopter parent. The great philosopher Bruce Lee, 
He said, do not pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to endure a difficult one. There's something to that. Look, we see this listless, lost generation without purpose or a sense of high calling. It's because they've been too readily dissuaded from hardship and challenge. The path to a life that's worth enough meaning to justify your existence is found on the hard road, the difficult road. Finding the biggest rock you can lift and lifting it and carrying it with purpose and responsibility. These disciples here in Tyre, they spent an entire week trying to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem. And it was because of their genuine love for him and concern for his well-being. But they were wrong. So perhaps you found yourself like the disciples at Tyre with the best of intent, trying to dissuade someone from doing the difficult thing. Or maybe you found yourself on the opposite side of that exchange. You find yourself like Paul in this circumstance, and a difficult task has been set before you by the Lord Jesus Christ. You have this clear sense of calling and purpose, but you know that it's going to demand your all. The voices of friends and family who are well-meaning, they try to offer you an easy way out. What do you do? Look at verses 5 to 6. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, Kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, verse 6, and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board our ship, and they returned home. Don't miss this. We go on in several more chapters in Holy Scripture to hear the story of Paul's unfolding hero journey in Christ. We never hear another word about the disciples in Tyre. See, Paul and the missionary team were determined in the face of these well-meaning, safety-seeking friends. Um, You've probably encountered this. It's sort of a tired old trope from George Bernard Shaw, but it's true. People who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. Look, a life worth living. No, no, actually, the very kingdom of God demands this kind of determined courage. Paul leaves Tyre. He's heading to what awaits him in Jerusalem. And he is determined, even in the face of well-meaning, safety-seeking concern. Look at verses 7 to 14. I want to keep pressing into this big idea, you know, mapping a life from courage that's rooted in conviction, determined courage, and now verses 7 to 14, sacrificial courage. Verses 7 to 8. Having left Tyre, they make their way eventually to Caesarea. Whose house do they stay in? 
Philip the evangelist. Verse 8, not to be confused with Philip the apostle. That's why he's identified as Philip the evangelist. This Philip is one of the seven deacons. Do you remember that? Back in Acts 6, was it Acts 6? He's one of the seven deacons. He was chosen alongside Stephen back in Jerusalem. This is important, okay, because Scripture is painting us a picture. Verse 9, we're told that this Philip has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Verse 10, a man, a prophet named Agabus, has made his way from Judea to Caesarea. That only makes sense if you can picture on a map um, where Jerusalem is. Caesarea is the port city of Jerusalem. So this um, prophet named Agabus has made his way to the home of Philip the evangelist in Caesarea. Verses 10 to 11, in a dramatic way, Agabus forewarns Paul in specific detail what awaits him in Jerusalem. He says, whoever this belt belongs to, rhetorical device, he knew who it belonged to, will be bound up and dragged before the Gentiles, taken to the authorities. Verse 12, Agabus, Philip, the daughters, in unison, plead out, please don't go. I want you to think about this scene for a moment. As you've been tracking through the unfolding narrative in Acts, it's little wonder that these daughters and Agabus warned Paul of the dangers of going to Jerusalem to preach Jesus. You see, Philip had no doubt told them the story many times, and probably with tears, of what he had witnessed and was probably still grieving, that is, the martyrdom of his close friend Stephen. Remember in Acts 6, they were called and set aside together to be deacons in the church. If you want to get a sense of this, some 29 years have elapsed by the time we get here to Acts 21 from Acts chapter 1. 29 years roughly. Approximately 18 years have elapsed since Acts chapter 6 where Stephen is stoned and martyred. And so here you have the household of Philip in Caesarea. Philip the evangelist. He would have been best friends with Stephen. You have his daughters. Maybe they never met him, but he would have been Uncle Stephen to them. And you have Agabus, who's made his way to Caesarea from Judea. And they all know the story far too well of what happens to people who proclaim Jesus in Jerusalem at the hands of the unbelieving Jews. Look, there's a hidden gem in this passage that I want to bring out. It's implied in the text, but it's there. It's the beauty and the glory of how the gospel heals rifts through forgiveness and grace. Very emotional passage here. Paul arrives in Caesarea to Philip's house. No doubt he has admitted to Philip and to Philip's household the role that he himself played 
in the stoning of Philip's best friend, Stephen. He stood there. He witnessed it. He carried the coats. So why did Philip and the daughters not seek revenge against Paul? Why did they not wish ill upon him? Well, there are at least two reasons. The first one is that as Christians, Philip and his daughters knew how much they had been forgiven in Christ. And how could they, having received so much forgiveness, not also forgive? That's why C.S. Lewis says, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. So Philip and the daughters have forgiven Paul. The second reason that they forgave Paul, they knew that the man who oversaw the stoning of Uncle Stephen, Saul of Tarsus, no longer existed. He had been dead and buried in Christ. The man who stood before them, Paul, was a new creation in Jesus. And so in this way, Paul enters the household of Philip with his daughters, and the rift has been forgiven. So Paul stands here in verse 13 before these weeping friends who are pleading with him, don't go to Jerusalem. They love him, they care about him. Verse 13, he asks the question, he says, why are you weeping and trying to break my heart? See, literally in the Greek, what he's saying is, why are you seeking to weaken my resolve? Paul was determined to carry out this path of costly obedience to the Lord, knowing that courage demands a sacrifice. Verse 13, he says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, the crowd eventually relents and they say, let the will of the Lord be done. What a picture of self-sacrificing courage. Okay, that's, that's our passage this morning. Let's apply it. You might be sitting here this morning and think, look, I am, at least to some degree, willing to sacrifice for what the Lord wants me to do. That's a good thing. You say, I'm willing to sacrifice to achieve an end that's rooted in conviction. I, I want to point my life in that direction. But here's the question. How do I know if I'm pointed in the right direction? Some people try to dissuade me off of this costly path. Are they the voice of reason, the voice of God? Or are they well-meaning but obstacles to what God is calling me to do? How do I know? You sit here and you say, look, I'm, I'm willing to pay the price, but I need to know if it's a noble cause or a fool's errand. But look at this scene captured here by Luke in Acts 21 in Philip's house. Agabus is a prophet. Philip's daughters prophesied. And they're pleading with Paul not to go. Yet we know that it is the coming imprisonment of Paul that's going to take place in Jerusalem that leads to Paul sharing the gospel in the highest courts. Verse 
There are two prophecies in this passage, both telling Paul not to go. And Paul stands against them both. What are we to make of this? Well, back in Acts chapter 22, we're told that the Spirit of God constrained Paul and compels him to go on this trip to Jerusalem. How do we resolve this? You know, there has to be a distinction made here between prediction and prohibition. We have to read this passage carefully if we're going to we're going to apply it to our lives. Agabus accurately predicted what the Jews were going to do to Paul in Jerusalem. He was, in that sense, right. But the people's pleadings in verse 12, not to go, you'll notice in the text, those are not attributed to the Spirit, are they? Instead, those are just from the people themselves. In verse 4, we can conclude the same thing. The warning was divine, but the urging was human. Let me say it differently. In both cases, the prophecies accurately foretold what was going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem, but their conclusion and their application from those prophecies, therefore do not go, that was just their own desire. That was not from the Lord. So Luke includes this account in Acts to show us that sometimes well-intentioned people can be wrong about what the Lord desires, even when they're accurate in describing it. These people who have Paul's best interest at heart, they're trying to protect him, but they haven't factored in Paul's resolve that the Spirit was compelling him to go to Jerusalem and all of these things were going to happen and yet he still needed to go. So Paul sets his face to Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him. He is obedient, he is courageous, and he faces what lies for him in Jerusalem unwaveringly, even with his friends pleading him not to go. Well, this raises a relevant question for Christian men and women today. We are all seeking to follow the Lord in a multi-channel, information-saturated age. If you are on social media and your algorithms are just right, you will be inundated by quasi-celebrity pastors on TikTok, YouTube, wherever. These are men who are seeking likes and views and placing themselves in a so-called prophetic role. They are on these social media platforms telling Christians whom they've never met what the Lord wants them to do. But, but that's not how it works, right? If you are a Christian man or woman and you are seeking the direction that God has for your life and you're willing to pay the costly price, but you want to know, how do I navigate all of these so-called prophetic voices? 
It's like this, right, where Agabus comes with a prophecy and the prophesying daughters come alongside and the prophesying disciples, and yet Paul had to know that they were accurate in what they were describing, but they were wrong in their conclusion. So how do we do it? You got all these voices coming at you through media and through you know, social media. How do you figure it out? Well, the ones that are biblically wrong, that's easy, <laughs> right? You get someone on your social media feed who tells you something that goes against Scripture, just like, whoop, unfollow, gone. But what about the ones, like in this case, that kind of seem right? What do you do with that? Well, you bring this to bear. You make the distinction between prediction and prohibition, just like Paul did. It could be that these social media pastors are accurate in what they are describing, but it doesn't necessarily apply to the conclusion that they're telling you for your life. That's what happened to Paul. But the second thing, and this is the point that I want to make, always remember that the functional unit of the kingdom of God is the local church, not social media. Not influencers. If you hear something, if you see something, and these people are claiming some kind of pastoral or prophetic role in your life to tell you what decisions to make, bring it to the elders of your local church. The, the, the Christian life is intended to be lived in this organic relationship with your pastors not with social media influencers. So you see all these other so-called prophetic voices out there. They seem like they're saying something that's good. They're kind of like Agabus. How are you going to figure it out? Come talk to me. I rejoice at getting DMs from you guys where you like send me a little clip from TikTok or on Instagram and you're like, yo, RD, what do you think about this? Sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's good. Or sometimes I'm like, eh, wrong. Delete. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how you figure it out. I remember when Matthew was a little boy and he was going to public school and, you know, a lot of the social indoctrination that is so rampant now is just beginning back when he was in grade one or two. And I remember the day that he came home from school and he was sort of perplexed, right? And he looked at me and he goes, Dad, at school they told me that two dudes can marry. That's not right, is it? And I'm like, no. But think about what's happening, right? This is the picture. You guys are going out into the world and you're hearing from all of these people who claim to be Agabus. They're trying to bring prophetic messages to bear. You don't know them. They don't know you. What are you supposed to do? Like Matthew, come home and ask. That's how it's supposed to work. So the disciples entire, um, the sisters in Caesarea and Agabus, they were correct in describing what awaited Paul, but wrongly concluded that he shouldn't go. Because obedience for Paul demanded sacrifice. And most often, Christian man or woman, it will for you too. Just before we conclude, consider the moments. Consider the areas in your life where obedience demanded a courageous sacrifice. Well, it's only right that this propagation of the gospel 
would demand sacrificial courage from Paul and from Christians still today. Because our message in the gospel is a message of the ultimate sacrificial courage. God has saved you in Jesus Christ. This ultimate sacrifice that demanded the greatest courage and conviction. We see it playing out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, our faithful Savior, who prays to the Father and says, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. This is the content and the method by which the gospel moves forward. Courageous, faithful sacrifice. It's what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, and it's the life that he calls you to. In this, your life will be saved from hollow meaninglessness. You'll have a purpose. And in this, you'll persevere to the end and be saved. Verse 14. It's the posture of the Christian man or woman. The Lord's will be done. Following in the faithful steps of Jesus, we submit to the Father's will. Because we see in Jesus, and we know the same is true for us, that suffering will lead to glory, and death will lead to life. We learn to love the Lord's will. And find courage and abundance and conviction in the gospel. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, I pray especially this morning that our confidence and conviction in the gospel would grow deeper. Deep to the point that it shapes and forms a courageous willingness to sacrifice even in this life. Give us the conviction that we would not shrink back from the difficult things, but risk the hard things for you. Thank you for the times, not only in Scripture, but in our lives where we have seen that you are faithful. Even and especially in those moments where the Lord's will feels like an awful lot of hardship and death, you redeem it in the end and use it for your glory. God, I pray this morning for anyone here who is faced with a decision, A or B, that you would give them the courage to face the hard thing if that's what you're calling them to do. To live their lives for Jesus because he died for them. We pray this in your name.